Hosting for this podcast is made possible through mtgcast.com, which is supported by a generous contribution from quietspeculation.com, Magic's premier trading and financial news site. Steve and I go in-depth on burning tendrils scenarios on episode 28 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 28 of So Many Insane Plays, in which Steve and I analyze burning tendrils scenarios. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We have a handful of upcoming tournaments to cover. Old World Games is hosting in Vacaville on September 15. There's another Team Serious Open at Comic Town in Columbus on September 28. And Odyssey Games in Kalamazoo, Michigan on October 5, their second event after the first one was such a rousing success. That's a lot of great uh, fall vintage action. But the culmination will be... Yeah, Vintage Champs coming up in November... And everyone I spoke to at Gen Con is pretty darn excited. Steve, do you have some new articles to cover? Yeah, so I just published this History of Dual Lands, which is a free article on Eternal Central. Be sure to check that out. I also published a Legacy Doomsday Puzzle, which is pretty fun. And I've got another one coming out, also on Eternal Central, so check that out. Um, the last art- premium article I published is my Grow Primer with uh, Pyromancer and Gush. Pyromancer just replacing Queer and Dryad and Modern Grow. And um, But I do have... a uh, the 10th chapter of the History of Vintage 2002, uh, which I'm trying to get wrapped up. And I'm actually deep into my third edition of the Gush book. I've actually got a lot on the docket. Excellent. Kevin, let's talk about Gen Con. Awesome. This is the first, yeah, the first year I haven't gone in a long time. Tell me about it. What, what was it like? Well, it was a little bittersweet, actually. It was just as you would imagine from a community standpoint. I had a great time. There was a heavy representation of Midwest players there, of course. Uh, Team Sirius, of course, and I spent a lot of my time with them. But the crowd was great, and the community was excellent. The vintage community around the larger events there was just a great time had by all. Uh, the attendance was not as high as it had been in past years, uh, of course, because the champs wasn't there. But interestingly, there was a pretty high contingent of European players present this year, which was nice. That The existing champ, Mark Lenegro, was there with his friends from Germany, as well as some other players from France and Spain, and so we had some interesting representation from Europe as well. It was a great time, though. I was really surprised that the vintage tournaments had such large turnout for not having uh, vintage champs. How many people showed up? The Friday tournament was surprisingly larger. It had just over 80 people, and then we had 45 on Saturday. I think the drop was likely due to the fact that there was more going on on Saturday, and a number of people came for Vintage on Friday and then did other things on the, the biggest day. 
It seems like it was a little bit of a throwback to the pre-vintage championship days. Yeah, I would agree with that. Except, except that the community was stronger. There was a greater camaraderie. I think more people knew each other. What was the metagame like? It was really, really diverse. Everything was represented, and I would say there was no deck or archetype that was dominant. The top eights for the events had a little bit of everything. There was the finals. They didn't play, unfortunately, but the finals from Friday was blue-white control versus the workshop affinity archetype, which was awesome. Unfortunately, they didn't play it out, but it was a really good showing for that robots deck. Mm-hmm. And the top eight from Friday, which is not well documented online, but it also included the same four colors humans deck and player that made top eight on Saturday, which was way cool. The Saturday event is fully documented on Eternal Central, of course. Kevin, I know you're a big fan of doing uh, the dealer hall and all that sort of thing and experimenting with other games. What, what was your experience like uh, walking around, seeing artists and stuff like that? It is Gen Con as you've always loved it and, and remembered it, Steve. I mean, th- this year's attendance grew a significant percentage over last year in terms of unique attendees and and single day attendees. And everything about the show is just continues to get bigger and better. There were dozens of magic artists there there are obviously dozens if not hundreds of games old and new to play it was just huge sounds awesome and you always make the most of it yeah i did this year a little less so than in years past just because last year was such a big deal but i did participate in a little bit of everything and in my opinion in my biased opinion the best part was still the vintage community it was so great. I had a moment of clarity, actually, as I was sitting watching the top eight of the Saturday event, just looking around thinking, I know everyone here, this nation, actually worldwide community, and I just know everyone here. And that's what's so awesome about Vintage. Now, some of you might say, well, you're the host of a Vintage podcast. Sure, you know everyone. But the simple truth is, is that I I knew everyone in the community before I became the host of this podcast. The, the, those features of the community are not a result of this podcast. The, the relationship goes the other direction. It's just really great. Participating in Vintage at Gen Con is awesome. It brings people from all over the United States and now increasingly all over the world. That's that's amazing. Um, is there a concern that maybe Gen Con's too big? I mean, you get trouble finding a hotel? <laughs> it is a logistical challenge, but... Honestly, in my opinion, no. It, it could probably sustain itself up to maybe twice its current size before the city of Indianapolis had real infrastructure problems. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's tight. You need to be on the ball. If you want to go, you need to be ready to sign up within the first 24 hours or to a week of the hotel openings if you want to be in, within walking distance of the convention. Yeah. But if you're willing to drive and park or take a cab or a bus or something, then, heck, you could get a hotel couple of months beforehand still and be fine on outside the loop of downtown i don't consider that to be a major issue but if you want to be within walking distance then yeah you need to be on the ball the day the hotels open up did you feel that there were maybe security issues at all that's an interesting point we did not have the security this year because vintage champs wasn't there and because many other major magic events weren't there and so there were not the same reports though so i think we're benefiting this year from some of the increase in security from last year if the lack of security becomes the new norm again i think that concern will return so it's a very delicate line that wizards and pastimes have to walk with that event 
And it may be that without Vintage Champs there, 80 to 100 people is the most we'll ever draw with Vintage Champs. And so the security issue could stay under the radar. But it is a valid concern. And for the handful of people that expressed their disinterest in attending in years past, I think that that is still an issue. Mm. Um, And what about the more marginal formats that are of interest to you? I mean, you used to be a big five-color person. (laughs) Could you get a five-color game? Can you? One thing Gen Con used to be known for is that you could, there was a little bit of everything. There is still that little bit of everything atmosphere. In terms of sanctioned events, there's, I mean, there was even round-the-clock vintage events firing with eight people and such. But to answer your specific question about five-color, that format really has gone by the wayside, replaced by EDH. EDH, or Commander, has though, is all over the place there. Just like every other sanctioned format, there's unsanctioned, but hourly win-a-box tournaments for Commander going all the time. There's Cube going on all around uh, I'm not so much into things like Pauper, but I imagine that if you were part of that community, whatever community it is that's active in Magic right now, you could go find it there. Oh, there was also Art League. Those of those few dedicated people, on, especially on the manager <laughs> and some other sites like Ma- Original Magic Art, they did some Art League games there too. That's a pretty niche crowd, but that just goes to yeah. that everything is that's, that's the most gilded of the... Uh... <laughs> Elite. <laughs> for the for those of you who don't know, which it may be a significant portion of our listenership, Art League is kind of a somewhat of an inside joke kind of thing, but it's a magic quote unquote format where the only cards you're allowed to play are those that you own the original art for. And so it produces very unique and one of a kind, of course, decks and a quote unquote metagame that is just absurd. And so it's pretty funny. And if you want to know more about that, there's some documentation on, about that on the Mandarin and some other places. Well, it sounds like all in all a fantastic Gen uh, Con experience, and you get to do it all over again at the Eternal Championship. I know. The Eternal Championship is going to be very similar in appeal, I think, and especially in our case and our listeners. So, yeah, I can't wait for Eternal Weekend. Just one, one last note. It's interesting that with the tremendous growth and expansion of uh, Gen Con, that Origins remains so disappointing. That's a really interesting point. Origins, I stopped going, as as you did, geez, probably eight to ten years ago now, and it still has its loyal following. I just think that it's different focus, its lack of real support for some of the other major gaming uh, tentpoles like D&D and board gaming. It just doesn't draw the same crowd, the same, and for whatever reason, you and I pretty much only went for the magic back in the day. It still had all of those things. It just never really never really matured into the same thing that Gen Con is. Actually, I have one, one last question for you. Do you feel like Wizards dropped the 20th anniversary of the ball? The short answer is yes. The, the events that were there were decent events, and the made the 20 years of draft was really cool and fun to watch, and it was a fascinating thought exercise also, but we can save that for later. The the simple truth, though, is there was no bombast. There was no celebration. The giant Sarah Angel statue from years past wasn't even there. It's just, it felt like, oh, by the way, this is also happening. It, and it was like it was some important person's birthday or something. It was not just not a big deal. In fact, there was an actual wedding ceremony at in front of the whole gaming hall, right in the middle of the day. One of the announcers conducted a, ser- uh, a wedding service, and that was much bigger than anything that Magic got while we were there. <laughs> wow, what a contrast. 
Well, hopefully Wizards does a much better job with the 25th anniversary. Yeah, I hope so as well. Well, thanks for that recap, Kevin. Fascinating. I'm sure I could pick your brain further, but um, we'll move on. We're going to dig in next to some scenarios, and we have chosen burning tendrils as the primary subject of our scenarios for this show. Scenarios are by far our most requested show topic, and so we like to focus on current events with most of our episodes and other things, but now we've got an opportunity to really dig into some of these, and a handful of them, Steve, are fresh out of your Burning Tendrils Bible. So readers of that will appreciate us analyzing some of these possibly in a little more detail, and anyone who hasn't yet read it will get a taste for what it's like. Yeah, these are some good scenarios. And, you know, there are a number of key scenarios that arise when playing Burning Tendrils, and really kind of burning long, burning tendrils. Um, one is the opening hand. And so it's, do you keep your opening hand or not? And Burning Tendrils is the classic uh, combo school in Vintage. It's it's the deck that uses the most restricted cards. It's got all the, the fun, amazing bombs. You know, Mind's Desire, Yawgmoth's Bargain, Yawgmoth's Will, Necropotence, Wheel of Fortune, all the draw sevens, and all the great mana acceleration. It's a really amazing deck, and I've had a blast playing it. It's not quite... A, I mean, the metagame has adjusted a lot more to it than than last fall when I broke it out. Um, and, and Burning Tendrils is... Uh, was enabled by the unrestriction of Burning Wish, and we talked a lot about that before, so I won't, I won't recap that here. But I just want to say there are a couple of key scenarios that come up. The first is, do you keep an opening hand? The second is, what do you do on turn one? And the third is, how do you sequence spells across turns? And the fourth is, what do you do, sort of, it's, it's a variation of the, what do you do with your opening hand, except it's a, what do you do now that you've just played this draw seven, and how do you sequence or order the, the cards you've just drawn with the draw seven. So those, those tend to be the most recurring scenario questions, and, and most of the scenarios will present track those uh, categories. So we've got five scenarios here, and they highlight all the kinds of challenges that you just mentioned, Steve. The first one is playing against workshops. So this is a known opponent, and your opening hand is City of Brass, Forbidden Orchard, Ancient Tomb, Chrome Mox, Mox Jet, Gristlebrand, and Tinker. So I see an ancient tomb in here. We're assuming a post sideboard game, right? Right. So this is just assume this is game two of the match, and you 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 probably you you lost game one, so you're on the play. Okay. Steve, do you want to set this one up then? Well, this this is a bit tricky for a number of reasons, but um, you know, so there are a number of things that are implicated here. The first question, I guess, one way of approaching is, would you keep this hand? The second question is, if you keep it, what do you do? And that can be broken up into several elements. So one one potential sub question is, which land do you play <laughs> among the three lands you have? Um, another question is, do you cast Tinker? If you cast Tinker, that compels you to imprint Gristlebrand on the Mox. And uh, another question is, if you cast Tinker, do you use it immediately? So there are really a series of questions that all flow from, uh, it's a decision tree that flow from one key decision, whether you keep it. So maybe we should start with whether you keep it. Would you keep this hand, Kevin? I would keep this hand. Any hand on the play that has action against workshops, I think is reasonable. And in addition to having action, this hand actually has really good mana. So even if your opening play consists of casting Tinker for Jar and activating Jar, and even if you don't win on this turn because of that play, you still have multiple lands and at least one Mox left over, including an Ancient Tomb, and so you're set up mana-wise to play a longer game if need be. Yeah, I think that's right. 
I think this is a, I think this is a keeper as well for the reasons that you just mentioned. The mana is stable. You have a really good bomb. It's a bomb that you can control. There are some risks though with this hand. Definitely. One key risk I see is that if the plan goes awry and you're not able to win on turn one using your memory jar, you have expended your Gristlebrand and your Tinker, leaving you with effectively no action in your hand. You'll be drawing off the top, despite right. good mana. But but the, it's not all bad news, because even though you'll be drawing off the top, you at least have really good mana. Mm-hmm. You can cast nearly any spell you would draw off the top. Yep. And at, given that it's a post-sideboard game, what have you boarded out because you're playing against workshops? What I've boarded out against workshops has tended to change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my Burning Tendrils Bible is the compilation of all my reports and um, my original primer from last October. Um, but the key thing that I've, I've come to realize is that, well, I mean, first of all, you bring in maximum Hercules recalls. So you'll probably have two Hercules main deck and then two in the sideboard. You bring those in. Mm-hmm. And you bring in three nature's claims. It, it, it depends. You you also bring in at least three or four ancient tombs. Whether you bring in Laboratory Maniac or not depends on a number of factors. I tend to bring Laboratory Maniac only in on the draw um, and keep Gristlebrand on the play. Mm-hmm. Although it depends, you know, um, again, it depends. But the key thing is that I sideboard out Dark Rituals at least two, sometimes three. Dark Rituals are one of the key cards that leave. You also sideboard out Duresses. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason you sideboard out Dark Ritual is because Dark Ritual is the worst mana accelerant against workshops. With the sphere in play, it only nets one mana. With two spheres in play, it doesn't net any. Artifacts are really where you want to be. They're the better accelerants. And Ancient Tombs are where you want to be. Mm-hmm. So the deck yeah. is definitely a slower deck on, in games two and three, because of what you've said. Yeah, I usually, I, I'll, I think I sideboard out two dark rituals, all four duresses, and uh, probably on the play it, it varies, but I think I, oh, I, side, I tend to sideboard out necropotence against workshops as well. How much does that factor into the equation of whether or not you activate Jar on turn one? Do you think it's a sure thing that you don't activate it on turn one because you're slower? Or would you still go for it? I think it depends on what you're trying to do. Um, there are a couple of things to break down here. One is that you need to think about what the risks are if you don't activate JAR. Mm-hmm. You also another thing is you need to think what are you trying to accomplish if you activate JAR. What is your end? What does the end game look like? If you don't, so let's tackle the first question because I think it's the more important one at the outset. And that is that there are a couple answers that are really devastating. One one thing your opponent can do is they can play Null Rod. That seems unlikely, but it's at least a possibility. Mm-hmm. Another thing they could do is play a Phyrexian Revoker on the Jar, which is pretty annoying as well. I mean, it's not to say you don't have a lot of answers to it with, you know, Nature's Claim and Burning Wish for Shattering Spree and... Hercules Recall, you do have a lot of answers, but you have to draw one, right? The third thing they could do is they could copy it with the Phyrexian Metamorph. That also can be pretty devastating. Um, if the, with the right configuration of accelerants on turn one, Workshop Metamorph plus some Moxin could mean you're facing multiple lock components. It doesn't mean that they're going to break the jar immediately, but it means that they, if they get another turn, if you don't kill them the next turn, they're probably going to go off. Yeah. So if if you pass the turn, you have to have a pretty clear plan of that that you're gonna when you're gonna jar. You know what what your plan for doing that is, and it gets complicated. So you know, suppose for example, you go, uh, you know, City of Brass, Mox, Mox, Tinker, and um, we haven't even discussed which Mox you tinker away, which is another you know point of contention we could break down. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get jar, and they go Workshop Sphere, and that's it, or Workshop Chalice. You know, you need to think about. 
how those interact with your Tinker um, and what it is Tinker is trying to do for you. I think Tinker here is trying to do multiple things. Um, I, you know, so just setting it out, if you go city, mox, mox, Tinker, and you activate the jar immediately, your chances of winning, I think, are are probably less than a third and probably under even 25%. Do you agree with that? Yes, I would definitely. And in certain other hands that were playing a turn one jar, one of the goals would be to, say, acquire more mana sources as opposed to just winning the game. Right. And that's right. not really going to be a goal or much of an option here. Because you don't have other bombs in hand. And you have to use your land drop to activate the tinker right. on turn one. So I think I think the basic goal here is... To, to get Jar into play for the purpose of probably playing turn two Oath, or, although that's somewhat risky with only one Gristlebrand in the deck, or, you know, you play the, you play the Jar to try and find a Hercules recall to bounce their board and make them lose their entire board. Which means you might not break the, the Jar immediately, but you may. And if you're able to bounce their whole board, you might also be able to you know, use the other resources in your hand to either win or set up a win. So you might, for example, find like a vamp tutor or something like that mm-hmm. to get things going in the right direction. But it, it, there's a lot of unknowns, and it's very unlikely that you'll be able to just tinker into the win. But like you said, you can tinker into resources. The question is, is that good enough to, to waste the jar? And are the risks high enough that you feel compelled to do it? I think the risks of hitting the Null Rod or Revoker are pretty low in this metagame. I do think, though, they'll have a Metamorph. The question is, A, will they play a Metamorph immediately? You know, or will they be more inclined to play a Sphere, right? Because if they just have, like, a Workshop and a Mox, which is probably the most they'll, they'll likely have, maybe a Workshop Mox Mox in the worst-case scenario, you know, the best thing they could do then is, I guess, Sphere Metamorph, but that's not very likely. And if... I think the Metamorph is statistically the most likely card they would have to answer you that, that really interacts right. with the jar, but it's also right. the one that is answered by all of your answers. Exactly. So, and it, and it doesn't actually stop you from using the jar, so I consider that to be a minimal threat. I don't think that's that shouldn't dissuade you from doing yeah, it. Yeah, agreed. Let's talk about a couple of the operational questions, though, which you've already alluded to. Number one, you need to play one of your two lands that produce blue mana. Which one do you think you play, City of Brass or Forbidden Orchard? Well, as a general rule, I lead with City over Orchard on turn one because it means less cumulative damage over the course of the game. Mm-hmm. And if you've boarded out Necro, you don't have to... Well, it's a minor issue, of course, but if you've boarded out Necro, you're not expecting to pay life for cards quite as often after sideboard. Right. And also, right. since you're, the presence of Ancient Tomb in your hand means that you do need to plan for tapping it multiple times if need be. Yeah. I mean, if you'd use the Orchard on turn one and turn two, that's three damage by turn three. Mm-hmm. Okay, then let's talk about tinkering away Witch Mox. Chrome uh, Mox imprinting Gristlebrand is clearly pretty identical to a Mox Jet in play. What do well, you consider to be the, the determining factor then? This is a really close question. Um, I I probably lean towards tinkering away the Chrome Mox because I feel like that gives you more versatility when you're in the process of going off. In other words... To, to so, change the color of it by playing it out of your graveyard? Yeah, yeah so so what I mean by that is I, I, the meaning is a little bit implicit, but when you play Yawgmoth's Will, which is really what this deck's game plan is geared toward, not entirely, but that, that's the general plan. When you replay the Chrome Mox... If you play it from your graveyard, you'll have maximum versatility as to what to imprint on it. So it may be the case, for example, that, you know, you do something really good. I don't know. You play a draw seven 
inside the tinker and you find Yogmas will and Yogmas will and you have two burning wishes in hand even after Yog will maybe you want to imprint one of them so you can cast the other burning wish or maybe you have a superfluous blue card like a windfall that you want to imprint onto it in order to play something else so I, I tend to think that tinkering away the chrome box is probably the better play because it gives you more options it is slightly higher risky uh, a slightly more risky play because chance that you will be so tight on resources that you won't have something really you know useful to imprint on it but I, I think that's I think the versatility outweighs that risk. You could manufacture a few scenarios whereby tinker away the chrome box and then a turn or two later, you haven't won yet, but a turn or two later you find the burning wish and you have no other colored spells in your hand. So yeah, that, that that's the, the risk. Balance. Yeah, that's the risk you're alluding to. Yeah. I would tend to think though that given the the, the implicit assumption that you're activating a memory jar, that's probably also a low risk and I would tend yeah. to agree with you that the flexibility is more powerful in the long run. Yeah, it's it's a close question. I mean, it's and you know, it's one of those things that's very hard to evaluate. It's just an experience-based thing. So, so you you we're, we both agree you probably tinker for jar and then the plan is probably jarring on turn 2 depending on what happens. Yeah, I would agree with that. The question is do you do you jar well, let me ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. Do you jar in your upkeep, which is the typical plan or or do you wait and play one of these lands and then jar? Hmm, interesting. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, your opponent goes workshop metamorph. <laughs> well, let's make two assumptions. One is that they go workshop metamorph. Another is they just go workshop sphere or workshop thorn. Mm-hmm. Under either scenario, what would you do? Start with the la- the second one. They go workshop thorn. They play their thorn. I want to maximize the likelihood that I'm going to have a land because. Yeah. So I would not jar on my upkeep. I would jar. I would. I would draw my card and play one of the lands in my hand, and then evaluate which land, of course, based on what I drew, as well as giving myself the maximal chance of drawing additional mana sources and or spells. Yeah. Or that is to say, eliminating the risk of not jarring into a land. The reason I I, I raise that is because you can already see how every turn this unfolds, you're incentivized to not break the jar, right? So if they go Workshop Thorn and they pass, you go, oh, hmm, okay. <laughs> you know, it's my upkeep. I, I decide I'm not going to jar. I'll play this Ancient Tomb. You might actually think to yourself, why not just let them deploy their board and then jar and Hercules them, right? Interesting. I think. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the danger, right? I think that comes back to, increasingly, what you know about their deck, vis-a-vis Null Rod and Revoker. If you have any information about the presence or lack of those cards, then that, I think, makes that decision starting on turn two. Yeah, yes. Also, it seems pretty clear that if but, they play but, something but, if they play something but, but, like but, Forge Master, then you're going to go. But, but does it? Does it? I mean, let's say you know they have Revokers or, or Null Rods, and they don't play it on turn one. Revoker or Null Rod. They only see one more that they draw. You know, let's say they have three Revokers in their deck. What's the risk that they draw a Revoker on turn two? That's a good point. The risk is low if they haven't played it on turn one. But I think by waiting till turn two and you've passed the check of whether or not they have Null Rod slash Revoker, I think you've eliminated many, many of the impediments to your winning the game there. The presence yeah. of a single thorn is not going to deter you with a, right. with a reasonable jar hand. Either you're going to find removal slash answers to that thorn in the way of bouncing it or removing it, or you're going to find a whole bunch of resources and a bomb, or all of the above. So well, I, the reason, yeah, but the reason to, to jar immediately is is that you get resources or a bomb. Mm-hmm. But if they have thorn, it's really hard to execute those resources unless it's oath. And oath is a very high risk play here because you only have one Gristlebrand left. So the question is, is it safer? I I think the question resolved to this to this. 
Do you jar on turn two for the goal of finding Oath, or do you continue to wait and deploy your mana in hand, try and build to maximize your chances of wiping their board and winning at the same time on a later turn? I would lean toward jarring immediately. If they played a single lock component on turn one, the more likely scenario, not involving a revoker or a null rod, is simply that they get to play two lock components on turn two thereby buying back the benefit you got of waiting. Yeah, If, and, if they and, play and a that, second speak and a tangle wire, for example, yeah. then you have yeah. just put yourself into a position where you need Hercules Recall and nothing else will do. I think you're right. I think, the, I think the proper plan is to jar on turn two, but the question then becomes which land do you play on turn two, and do you play a land? I think the reason you don't jar in your upkeep is because you want to be able to play one of the lands from your hand. Mm-hmm. So I think the answer is yes, but which land do you play? They have a thorn. You have, you have city. city. And one and mox. mox. And one mox. Any land means that you'll be able to resolve Oath of Druids, so that's not a limiting factor. Because of the thorn, though, an ancient tomb means that you would be able to deploy one other spell, perhaps. Yeah, but if you don't play the Orchard, you won't be able to activate Oath if you draw it. You won't be able to activate it on the following turn, that's right. Right. If Let's say you drew, you jarred into Hercules Recall and Oath. Mm-hmm. You still wouldn't be able to play them both, even if you played the Ancient Tomb. You would not play them both, you said? You, you would not be able to play them both, unless you drew other Moxen to go with. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, unless you, but even still, the, uh, yeah, if you drew other Moxes, there's a good chance you can. The average hand of seven in this deck is going to have at least one Mox in it, and most of the Moxen in, in this deck would be on color, quote-unquote, for that play. Yeah, and this assuming this deck has two Mox Opals, right. there's a good chance. So let's say... Your your hand of seven includes Hercules Recall and Oath and any other mocks that's relevant to those two spells. In that the case, Her- playing the, the Hercules Recall is really not that important, though. No, I'm because I'm, once you- I'm thinking about what the typical way in which you'd be able to play a removal spell and forward your agenda with an oath. That's what I'm trying to plan for. I'm yeah. trying to say in that scenario, is it important that you played one land or the other? Yeah, I think the orchard becomes the imperative if the immediate goal is oh. However, the the flip side is with a thorn in play and you play an orchard, if you don't jar into any other meaningful accelerants, then your options for playing spells are limited to basically just a single removal spell on the thorn or oath of druids. And jarring into a single removal spell is pretty disappointing at this juncture in the game. You mean like a nature's claim? Yes. If you just play ancient tomb, and you fan open a hand that has a land and, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, if you play Forbidden Orchard, so you've got City Orchard Mox, mm-hmm. if you play just that and you jar into a hand that has, say, Windfall or or Burning Wish or Wheel of Fortune, none of those spells are live. Yeah. Even if, In fact, even if you drew a Mox to go into your hand, none of those spells are live. You can't meaningfully Burning Wish in this scenario. So you're looking, uh, at, you're looking at Oath of Druids or a removal spell. Those are really the two things that are relevant that are going to come out of your hand, barring shenanigans of drawing Black Lotus and some other things. So so which land do you play? I think you play the Forbidden Orchard. It does make you rethink, if you thought this far through, that maybe Orchard is the right turn one play. You don't get hosed by Wasteland with this draw, so losing access to your Orchard is not a critical concern once you've given them the first spirit. I think that's worth considering. Yeah. Yeah. You and I, I mean, you answered the question with regard to a longer term view, though, that's less damage over two or three turns. And the more we've decompressed this, the more I'm starting to feel that the turn two 
jar is going to be a very incremental play. You're really hoping to find Oath, in my opinion. Otherwise, you're looking at a removal spell, perhaps for their Thorn, in, in addition to some other Moxen. There really aren't too many other great plays there, because the presence of a yeah. Thorn means that Burning Wish is basically a non-issue. You could get lucky if you played Ancient Tomb and Burning Wish for balance and hurt their, I don't know, you wouldn't be hurting them at all. They'd be inside of a jar. What yeah. is there anything is there anything you would legitimately expect to be able to burning wish for on turn two in the face of a thorn? A, a shattering spree. So that just goes back to the removal spell. That's just a yeah. five mana version of all the one and two mana spells in your deck. Yeah. Plus it's going away mm-hmm. with the jar. So yeah, I mean, and this gets back to the point that a thorn is fairly constricting. Mm-hmm. So the question is, you know, what is it you're trying to achieve, and is there a reason to wait? You know, you you have to balance all those concerns against each other, and it's it's a tricky that's a tricky balancing act. In my estimation, there are still some scenarios that play out in the best case kind of manner. For one, you could draw Black Lotus and Hercules Recall yep. and Absolutely. other action. Yeah. At which point you can kind of not ignore the thorn, but play through it. Just fight through it. Yeah, if you're if you're being very aggressive, you could play the tomb. You could activate the jar. You could hope to be able to like nature's claim or Hercules them, and then you know play a couple moxen and a draw seven. But but even then, you're wondering what are you getting towards? If you don't win there, you're gonna you know you're gonna have to discard all your stuff at the end of the turn. No matter how much mana you put on the table, you still aren't advancing your game plan because you have no resources in hand at the end of the turn. I am inclined to think that if you got to the point of Hercules Recall and a draw seven, that unless you were used up exactly all of your mana to make that play, there's still a fairly good chance that you could find an oath and resolve it. Yeah, but there's also a good chance you've drawn your Gristlebrand or a <laughs> near the bottom, so it's not of use. Well, l- let's answer a more fundamental question there. You keep alluding to that risk. What do you truly think? Do, if you... F- if you jar okay. in, if you jar on turn two and the only relevant thing you get is oath. And you play a draw seven inside the jar? No, no, I just mean chan- finding oath. Just you you jar into oath on this turn two, and that's the only meaningful thing you add to the board. Are you still executing oathing up Gristlebrand as your primary plan? Yes, I will, but I think there's like a twenty percent failure rate right there. Yeah. I think that's fair. And also you're increasing the risk that th- if they have metamorph to copy your gristlebrand that you can't then win that game. It's still yeah, possible. Well, that's, it's still possible, of course, but that just adds to the risk. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But you do have four Hercules, so if they do metamorph crystal brand, your goal right there is just to Hercules them. Right. And if it is a worst case type scenario, and crystal brand is say in the bottom ten cards of your library, you are going. The, the flip side of that risk is that you get increasingly perfect information about what your options are left. That's true. So if you if you oath down to a 10-card library, you'll be able to know how many removal spells you have there and what your options for doling them out are. Yeah. Well, I think we pretty comprehensively exhausted this scenario. I think it's got a lot of nuance, but we both agree you probably jar on t- in turn two and then just see what happens from there. Mm-hmm. All right. But you don't jar on your upkeep. You wait. You probably play You probably play the, the, the Rainbow Land. I believe so. I believe so. All right, let's move on to scenario two, which is another opening hand, as we said. Mox Sapphire, Mana Crypt, Mox Opal, Gemstone Mine, Dark Ritual, Tinker, Burning Wish. So What are we playing against? This is an unknown opponent. The turn one, and are you on the play? It is. Turn one on the play, unknown opponent, and we have access to 
business spells, tinker, and burning wish, but not both. No, I lied. We do have access to both. Excuse me. We do have access to both thanks to Mana Crypt. So we have two Moxon in a Crypt, four plus a land is five plus Dark Ritual, possibly seven mana, which is a healthy amount of mana. We have the option to tinker and Burning so Wish in so so one order. So just to be clear procedurally, we've already decided to keep his hand. It's turn one against an unknown opponent, game one. Mm-hmm. We are on the play. What do you do? <clears throat> is that right? Agreed. I think... Given that we have an abundance of mana here and we could execute both of our spells, then I think the primary consideration when choosing our sequencing is force of will. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this, um, this hand raises a sequencing question. Um, you have two quote business spells, the Tinker and Burning Wish. The fact that you can play both is less important than what you do with them because you can do different things with both. Mm-hmm. You could tinker for Jar, but you could also tinker for Black Lotus. Mm-hmm. And tinkering for Black Lotus isn't necessarily the wrong play here. You can Burning Wish for removal, like uh, or discard. You can Burning Wish for Thoughtseize immediately, or you can Burning Wish for something like Empty the Warrens or even Diminishing Returns. So there are lots of options here. And just to be clear, the notion of Tinker for uh, Black Lotus implies then subsequently Burning Wishing for either a Draw Seven or Yawgmoth's Will. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, I would. If you Tinker, if you Tinker, I think what you so let's just let me just sketch that out. So you probably go Mox Sapphire, Mana Crypt, Mox Oval, and then you probably Tinker away the Mana Crypt, and you cast Dark Ritual. I mean, first you cast Dark Ritual off the Mox Opal. You Tinker away the Mana Crypt, then you Burning Wish. Sorry, into into Black Lotus, then you sacrifice the Black Lotus for Red, then you Burning Wish for Yawgmoth's Will, play Yawgmoth's Will, replay the Lotus and the Mana Crypt. You would have four mana floating going into your Will, plus Mana Crypt, plus Lotus is seven, plus the Ritual again is nine. You'd have access then to nine would, mana, then you Tinker for yeah, Jar. Yeah, then you would Tinker the Opal away, and then you would um, Jar and try to win from there. Jar with six mana floating, effectively. Yeah. The upside to that... And you haven't even played a land yet. I was going to say, the upside to that is that you have a ton of mana when going into a memory jar. Six mana is effectively a lot. You could still cast Bargain with that hand and still have not played a land. Yeah, if you draw an Academy or something, it really imprisons. Mm -hmm. But of course, that, that just folds to a force of will. But that whole plan. It doesn't fold though to a. It doesn't fold to a mental misstep. While that, while that's true, that, that that tactic won't work if they have force of will. I think it's important to note that you can still start that plan because a player that has force of will is, I think, gonna highly likely going to counter the tinker. Yeah, at which, I agree. At which point you just readjust. Yeah. So. Yeah, if they counter the tinker, but but there is the whole thing where this hand right here, you could just burning wish for empty the warrens. Wait, you can't burning wish for empty the warrens. Turn one. Because you're, you're bottlenecked at one. You're, you're, I have the opal, or you need two red to Burning Wish and empty the Warrens. You have, even though you have enough aggregate mana, you don't have enough red. No, you have opal and gemstone mine. You do have access to two red. Yeah, but you, you need the dark ritual to cast both. Oh, I see. You're right. You're bottlenecked on having red, red, black. Yeah. Okay. So Burning Wish for empty is out of the question. Burning Wish for tendrils is still a possibility. Burning Wish for uh, Thoughtseize and Diminishing Returns are the most likely. A fairly safe way of going about this is, is this. This is probably what I would do against Control. I would go, I would probably go Gemstone Mine, Dark Ritual, and see if they mental misstep. I like it. Dark Ritual is definitely the most expendable card in this hand. Yeah. And not a, requ- not a requisite of, of many lines of play. Then I would play the other three Moxen, I would go Burning Wish for Thoughtseize, and then next turn I would Thoughtseize Tinker. That's probably what I would do. Interesting. 
I like the leading with the gemstone into dark ritual. If they, the upside though is that if they let the dark ritual resolve, you can burning wish for thoughtsies, play it, and tinker. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm almost certain that's what I would do with that hand. What? Okay. Let's say that they do misstep the ritual though. Yeah. What do you think about playing the four moxen and tinkering away the opal at that juncture? Assuming it resolves. My plan would be, I would just have Sapphire untapped, so my plan would be to pass the turn with Jar in play. I don't think that I would do that. I don't think I would do that. Why not? I don't know. I, I see the merit to what you're saying. I think the problem is, okay, so you say they've mental misstepped your Dark Ritual? Yes. If they force your Tinker, you've lost the Opal. You have a Gemstone Mine with two counters, a Mana Crypt, and a Mox Sapphire. You could turn two Burning Wish and turn three Diminishing Returns, which isn't the worst. I just think the safer line to play is to just burning wish for Thoughtseize, play it next turn and tinker. You're probably going to be in the clear, but they don't, you know, I think that's probably the right play. If you're a control player and you've seen that opening of Gemstone Ritual and you misstep it, and then they go three mocks in burning wish, would you force that burning wish? I believe I would. If they would, that's good for you. Because then you're untapping with tinker for jar and five mana and and the burning wish is in the graveyard where you want it not exiled good point good point and there's a ritual in the graveyard already yeah that tinker for jar has a pretty high degree of success baked into it at that point going back to what i had suggested if they, they misstep your ritual and then they have they still have force of will and they force your tinker then you would untap with Sapphire, Crypt, Gemstone, Burning Wish. It's not nearly as powerful or exciting or immediate as untapping with the Tinker. Yeah, so in this context, you want them to be forcing your Burning Wish, I think, is what we've boiled down to. Yeah, at that point, you have to Burning Wish for Diminishing Returns, which is not very exciting. Right, and and you lose a whole turn doing it. Well, I I had intended to ask at some point early on, but we've already gotten around to the answer I wanted, is if you had to have them Force of Will, Tinker, or Burning Wish... Which would you want? And I think your assessment is is correct. Having your burning wish forced is and putting it into the graveyard is something I hadn't even considered when evaluating this originally. Is that when it comes time to go off, that means that you have the luxury of being able to go off through Yogmoth's will without having to find another tutor as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Which gives you lots more options. And just so we address the point that was really brought up in our first scenario, assuming it plays out the way you said, they for, they misstep your ritual, you burning wish, and they force it, you start turn two by tinkering for jar. I assume you activate jar right then and there, yes? Yeah, I would I would probably activate it right there. Mm-hmm. There is one other line of play that um, Lily Merritt's mentioned, and that is just going sapphire, gemstone mine, burning wish on turn one. With the goal being? Uh, empty the warrens. On turn two, four, one, two, three, four, five copies at the minimum. At minimum. Barring what you draw. <clears throat> against and you have to pay for some Flusterstorm copies, too. You consider those, good point, you consider those ten goblins to be sufficient to win against most archetypes? I think it really depends on the, the matchup. I mean, against a lot of these, I mean, you know, it could actually actually be for you uh, depending on what for example suppose you go gemstone mine mock sapphire and you play burning wish for empty the war mm-hmm. right and then you you tap the gemstone mine on turn two and you go dark ritual there's a good chance they counter that which means that they're actually going to feed your storm count i think against a lot i mean so if they mental misstep or fluster storm that then you just go and a crit box opal empty the warrens good game um or tinker for lotus and the same thing um 
I think, though, that against a lot of these, like, very slow control decks, that empty the Warrens for 10 is probably good enough to win the game against almost all, most of these decks. Um, I just don't think that that is the right play in general, but it is certainly a promising line of play. Would you consider 10 Goblins to be good enough against a median workshop deck? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't... I, I don't know what workshops are doing right now. I know they're doing a lot to help combat Pyromancer, so they've got more answers, but I, I definitely think an early spate of 10 goblins is probably good enough to win in most games. If you're going after the Empty the Warrens approach against workshops, it has lots of upside against their lock components, Tangle Wire and such. It's really yes. good against Lodestone Golem. There is one major downfall, though, and that is Worm Coil Engine. This whole route to victory gets undone by a single Worm Coil Engine, unfortunately. Yeah, but that does cost like a bunch of mana. <laughs> well, it's it's a turn two play for the decks that play it. Yeah. Um, Regardless, I think, I, I think yeah. it, it, obviously it boils down to what you know about your workshop playing opponent as to whether or not you think 10 goblins is good enough. But against yeah. workshops, though, I mean, we've been analyzing from the standpoint of playing against the control yeah. primarily. Well, yeah, another reason I think that my play of against an unknown opponent, the play... The original play I, I sketched out, which you didn't actually have highlighted as a possibility, is just you play Gemstone Mine and Dark Ritual. Because if it turns out you're playing against workshops, then you just play all three of your artifact accelerants. You Burning Wish for the Thoughtseize. You play Thoughtseize. You see that they don't have... You take their best card. Then you Tinker for Jar. And you're really you're really good in that position. And then we're basically back to our first scenario at that point. Exactly. Except, except, except that you've taken you've the best card. Yeah, except that you've Thoughtseized them so yeah. you have excellent information about what to play around. Exactly. So you can really set up the win. And you have a lot more you know stuff in play too so i think it's i think i think that's the best play but i don't want to underestimate the possibility of a, a large empty the warrants under two that certainly has merit <clears throat> i feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on what is the most aggressive play i know we started out by saying it's an unknown opponent but if you're simply a super we, aggressive we, player we already said the, the first the most aggressive play is the one i sketched out at the very beginning which is Tinkering for Black Lotus, Burning Wish, Yogwill. Oh, okay. You consider that to be the most aggressive approach. That makes sense. That's the play you do when you're playing the combo mirror, or you're playing against Dredge. <laughs> Fair enough. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. You also have sufficient mana to Tinker for Lotus and Burning Wish for Diminishing Returns. But that's not. Yeah, that's that's not better than. I mean, that, that would certainly be a line of play if Tinker weren't here. Yes, because Tinker getting you through to the Yogmoth's will gives you more resources in total, more mana. Yeah, and you still see seven cards either way. The the reason to do diminishing returns is if you didn't expect to win. But why are you taking the heavily aggressive route if you're not expecting to win? Yeah. All right. Scenario three. We have a similar setup to our last. This is an opening hand on the play against an unknown opponent. You have Mox Emerald, Mox Pearl, City of Brass, Forbidden Orchard, Duress, Burning Wish, Wheel of Fortune. This one really highlights the interaction of Duress with the rest of your bombs. This is like a classic original Burning Tendrils example. <laughs> this is old school. Uh-huh. So the basic the basic dichotomous choice here is do you play turn one wheel of fortune or do you lead with duress? Um, I'm a fan of leading with duress here. I'm in that school of thought. What do you say to those who would point out the omnipresence of mental misstep in today's environment, though? That's fine. I don't think that mental misstep changes that equation enough simply because people don't play four mental missteps. They play two or three. I I see your point. I'm referring more to the opportunity cost of not just leading with wheel. What about an opponent who has mental misstep but no force of will? You're better off 
just leading with wheel in this case, I think. Yeah, it depends on the matchup for sure, but if you're playing against a workshop deck, you want to play Wheel of Fortune here. I think in, in general, your better bet is leading with duress. You don't have to worry about getting wasteland because you have a second lane. They wasteland you, it's actually tempo for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're clearing the way for your turn two wheel, which is fine. And, um, if they have two counters, like let's say you see two counters with duress, that's still fine because you can turn two burning wish for Thoughtseed, take the second one, and clear the way for wheel. So I, I just think duress is the right play given the, the circumstances and the totality of factors factors here what about the notion or how much value do you place on undermining your opponent's mulligan decision with the turn one wheel oh i i think that duress undermines their mulligan decision even more because they're more more likely to have only one good good card in hand i agree i agree i think that there are other situations that don't involve duress where you can measure the merits of a draw seven being a disruptive factor yeah but duress is definitely superior at playing that role let's take for example the notion that you duress and they have two counters you're going to take one of them whichever is most appropriate and you said burning wish for thoughts ease on turn two yep and take the second okay if they have more than that let's say for example that they open up a really disruptive hand that has misstep okay. cluster storm and force yeah. and you're yeah that, that that's much simpler you you do is you burning wish for empty the warrens and then you just wait well but that's what i'm getting at is you wouldn't know that if they had misstep cluster storm force oh yeah they misstep your duress yeah i mean if they have three counter spells you just have to play it as if you don't know that you you know you i mean if they're mental misstepping your duress you're still going to burning wish for thoughtsies mm-hmm. thoughtsies and then you're going to throw the wheel out there and if it's counter then you're both in top deck mode yeah you know and you, you have a good chance of winning that match just keep going this deck does top deck much better than the average control deck or the average deck that has Flusterstorm and misstep in it yeah and there's a lot of things you can draw that Flusterstorm you don't care about like what if you draw a note you know exactly is there any other combination of burning wish on turn one or two that you would consider here combination well you do have the option of simply playing burning wish on turn one is there any scenario in which you would choose to do that um yes um i guess it would all fall under the heading of a known opponent wouldn't it yeah if you knew what your opponent was there might be a uh, a possibility of turn one burning wish. Um, I'm trying to think what it would be. I guess it would be workshops. I you know duress is still an excellent opener against workshops. I'm trying to think. There's probably a deck out there where I would want to burning wish for something proactively. Maybe. Well, you can't do it against dredge because dredge can cabal therapy. Let's let's talk. Let's touch on that. I think. What do you think? you would do if you knew your opponent was dredge and you're on the play. You could wheel a fortune, and it has some upside, because odds are they kept a hand with Bizarre, and this is the classic example of undoing their mulliganing decision. Yeah. You have the max Dredge is the matchup where disrupting their mulligan decision has the maximal impact. So you could, yeah, you could but, wheel them into a hand with no bizarre, but you've also increased the odds that you've just given them dredgers in their graveyard to begin with, and they can start dredging on their first upkeep, which is awfully unfortunate. Yeah, if you're playing against dredge, I think I think you probably huh. The flip side to that though is yes, they might dredge on their first upkeep, but if they if you truly cut them off of bizarre, you have cut their clock in half, if not by more. So your wheel plus their slower clock means you've just you've just put yourself in a position of having a much higher win percentage than they do. Yeah, I'm not sure that I would play turn one wheel against dredge either. Well, then that's getting at the alternative. You're clearly not going to duress them. So, well, okay, you're you're probably not going to duress them. 
do you have a good burning wish target that you would prefer then? Yeah, the burning wish target you want to get is diminishing returns. The problem with diminishing returns is that they can cabal therapy out of your hand. Right. So it could be that the only matchup where a burning wish is the right play on the first turn is still making it the wrong play because they can get it out of your hand because you're not fast enough. I I genuinely feel that wheel is the option to go with against dredge if they're a known opponent. And it gets better and better the more they've mulliganed. I would do it if you were on the draw, but I don't think I'd do it on the play. Well, that's an interesting point, and I don't agree with you. I don't think you wheel on the draw against Dredge. The reason is... I might do it. might do it. Well, unless there was some extenuating circumstances. I don't want to give them a bunch of Dredgers before they bizarre, because they have a chance of winning on turn one then. That's the whole problem, though, is if you wheel on the draw against them while they have bizarre in play you're really setting yourself up to get killed on their second turn. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd just say I'd be more inclined. I don't think it's right in either case. Okay. I think you, yeah. I'm of, I mean, I'm of the opinion that there is no way that I would do it on turn two on the draw. If I was on the draw against Dredge, I might burning with for diminishing returns on turn one. Yeah, that's, I think, the right play there. Because they have to strip out both. You're running the risk of, that's a good point. They are, if they're going to therapy you on two, which there are high odds of that, they're going to take diminishing returns, and now you're left you're left with wheel as a backup plan. Yeah. It, but it really is an, an emergency switch right there because you need to win the game that turn, otherwise they're almost guaranteed to kill you on their third or their yeah their third turn. Yeah. All right. I think we've exhaustively covered this scenario. Yeah. Which is which is, which is um, focused, but a good one. It's a, a real judgment call. You lead with duress or wheel. Right. All right, this next one has more limited options here, and this was a real in-tournament scenario that happened to me at Gen Con. Scenario four, your opening hand is Gemstone Mine, Chrome Mox, Lion's Eye Diamond, Burning Wish, and Gristlebrand. So you played Burning Tendrils at Gen Con? No, this hand was played against me. Okay. It was They mulliganed to five because their hand of seven and six both had Gristlebrand in them. Now, this was... This is our friend and cohort, Jerry Yang, playing... He mulliganed mulliganed to five because he had Gristlebrand in hand? Well, no. What Gristlebrand meant was that he didn't have good enough action in his hands of six and seven. As you know, Gristlebrand is frequently a blank in many hands. It's also often a a Chrome Mox imprint target. Well, that's okay. And that's why he was able to keep this hand of five, is because it still had some functionality. So he has Gemstone, Chrome Mox, Lion's Eye Diamond, Burning Wish, Gristlebrand. The first question is, as you've said, Steve, do you even keep this hand? This is a pretty ugly hand. I should add that this is a post-sideboard game, and he knows that I'm playing the Pyromancer Gush Grow deck. Okay. Well, I would I would definitely keep this hand. I don't think you're going to get better. I, I think I would keep this hand. It's very ugly. Your chances are very slim. I think you have to keep Is there any other option than Gemstone Mine, Chrome Mox, Imprinting Gristlebrand, and Burning Wish? I don't think there nope. is. Nope. In which case, what what are your choices? The only thing I think you can do here is, is balance. On turn one, right? Yeah. Okay. I don't think you have much of a choice. Assuming that that isn't the only option, which it really isn't, what is the second choice? The second choice is you converting wish for show and tell and help to draw a land and play it. But no, you've imprinted your crystal brand. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, there is no second choice. <laughs> the second choice is burning burning wish and printing gristle brand for thought seize and thought seizing on turn two you mean thought seize yeah on turn two setting up for a much longer game hoping to draw some action off the top yeah you, you have almost no chance your only game here is just to to uh to balance 
if balance resolves, they're mind twisted on turn one, which is pretty good. Yeah, that that play, just so everyone's clear, that play results in both players having no hand and no permanence. But except you have two permanents. No, you have two permanents apply. Oh, I'm sorry, you have Chrome Mox. I lied. You end. You and end a with, gemstone. No, the gemstone goes with the balance. Oh, that's right. My bad. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, uh, you're right. The burning long player ends up up one card basically. Yeah. At the moment. But it's a very important one because it's a black mana source. Yeah. Which is your most. It's a pretty good one. Yeah. Oh, I just realized there is one theoretical alternative, and that is to just play Gemstone Mine and say go. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you could yeah, you could draw one more thing. You might be able to. You could um, you could Burning Wish keeping Gristlebrand in hand, and then you could get Show and Tell. If you, if you draw one more mana, then you can uh, diminishing returns with Burning Wish as well. On turn two, yes, uh, through good point yeah. through Lion's Eye Diamond. But I, I don't. I think balance is your only chance here. Okay. Well, for the sake of posterity, Jerry made the same choice you did. He reached that conclusion, and I didn't have Force of Will or any other counter, so I just discarded my hand, and he had his Chrome Mox. <laughs> and my first draw was... My first two draws were a Volcanic Island and a Preordain, which is oh, pretty awesome. Oh, there you go. I mean, not, not absolutely well, yeah, the but, best, but pretty amazing. I mean, the reality is... The reality is <laughs> Grow is going to recover. The, the problem, as long as Grow finds a mana, it's going to recover faster. It just has more celerity in its deck. And yeah, but there is one other thing you could do, which is that you could hold off and you could try and pull off the empty the Warrens play. So the same thing. But I, I just think balance is better. Sorry. So you were saying. So you drew Volk and Preordain, and you went off from there. Yeah, I I basically recovered faster. He drew a couple of mana sources, and two or three turns later, I had two lands out. And I drew a thought seize, and I thought seized and saw his hand, and yeah. it was he he had drawn he had drawn one business spell that he couldn't yet cast. I can't remember. What were you playing differently from my deck, my grow deck? I what did. Difference? I did not have uh, at this point. I was not playing as many regrowths as you. I think I only had one, and so you cut two regrowths. Yeah, playing. and I was playing more removal spells at that point. In the main, I had one more anti artifact card than you did. I think. I had three, and I, I had, had two ancient- and I had I think one more counter spell that I, I don't remember. I played two different lists over the weekend, so at one point I had two thought seizes in the main, and I can't remember if this is one of those games or not. I honestly don't remember. What did you think of thought main? I thought it was fantastic. I thought yeah. it was it was actually quite good, and I think it's a, a reasonable alternative or replacement for either regrowths or some of the other disruption packages. But I know you are pretty high on the regrowth still. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually want to play Thoughtseize main deck as well. I would have. That's why I put the two in the sideboard. Yeah. But um, but a regrowth is a very important part of the uh, of the gush bond engine. I don't think you need consistent gush bonding, but you trim more regrowth. Yeah. Which is one of the interesting tensions with that deck. But anyway, we've reached the same conclusion that Jerry did in our game, and unfortunately it didn't work out for him, but I would consider it to be a low percentage play to begin with, naturally. Yeah. Well, no, no, actually, I mean, I think it's 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 his highest percentage play. I don't think it's that low. I just think the problem is if you go Volcanic Preordain in your first two draws, in either order, you're going to find the second land, and then you're going to be in business. If you don't find a, a dual land, though, which is, you know, you can Preordain, you could draw Ancestral Recall, etc. So if you don't find a land, you're out of luck. That's a good point. So I think actually it wasn't a low percentage play. I think it'd be, it's only the fact that you had a land in your top two that made it, it devastating. Would you, just to draw a line, would you consider that to play to be better than fifty fifty for the burning tendrils player? I think it's at least a fifty fifty. I think it's fifty fifty. Interesting. He's got a chrome mox in play. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think that's a fifty fifty play. Okay, that's fair. I, I was not as optimistic on it when I initially assessed it and when he and I discussed it after the fact, but 
I think that's a reasonable assessment. And you're right. Had I not had access to a land, he could easily have recovered with any number of bombs in the first three turns. Yeah. All right. That brings us to our fifth and final scenario, which is another opening seven. Mox Ruby, Chrome Mox, City of Brass, Gristlebrand, Tinker, Windfall, Burning Wish. Steve, this example, with the exception of our Mulligan to five, is the most mana-restricted example we have on our list today. You have three options at least on turn one, but you can only choose one of them within reason. You could Tinker and then Windfall or Burning Wish, but I don't think you would. No, yeah, I don't think you would either. So we've got the coveted Chrome Mox plus Gristlebrand interaction at our disposal, but we might not do that if we were planning to, say, Burning Wish for Show and Tell. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself. You consider this hand keepable hand? And against an unknown opponent, while Gristlebrand is a relevant factor, we have three different turn one plays effectively, and they all go in a pretty different direction. We've touched on before the notion of disrupting your opponent's mulligan decision, though. How much do you like leading with Windfall here? I love it. Yeah? I think it's the right play. What about the issues we discussed in the third example, primarily in terms of your opponent's force of will? Let's say that that's fine. I mean, that, that's for, actually what you, if you take for granted that they have one. I think that's what you want to do, right? You want to draw up force. If they don't, then you're all the better. And if you if they have force, you think that burning. Or I'm sorry, you think that windfall is the best card to get forced. Yes, I would agree, especially since assuming any of the other cards gets force of will, your windfall is thereby much worse on subsequent turns. Yeah. Exactly. Windfall is at peak power on turn one. Um, you know, there are a couple of exceptions to that, but as a general rule, in this case, you want to lead with the windfall to draw out a force, and that leaves you with Tinker and Burning Wish in hand, two mana in play, three mana in play. So, and just to be clear, what are you imprinting on Chrome Mox in that scenario? With that, Crystal Brand is going down. Is there any merit to the notion of imprinting Tinker? Such that if your windfall gets yeah. forced, you can Burning Wish for Show and Tell as a backup. It's very low because um, Burning Wish for Show and Tell is is a that bit makes a, a turn three play. Whereas what you probably want to do is you either want to Burning Wish for for um, Thoughtseize on turn two, or so you can Tinker on turn three, or just Tinker on turn two. I I see. Which brings us back to one of our prior scenarios, basically. Yeah. So what do you think? would you would you windfall? Yeah, I had concluded in my analysis that I liked windfall to start with. For all the reasons you already mentioned, I guess similar to example three, then, is there any scenario in which you would wish you hadn't windfalled? I mean, is there any opponent that you'd prefer not to windfall against? With this hand, it's really hard to say, but um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. It just seems like windfall is the all-around correct. Maximal card advantage. Either way, it's going to be great. That's what it's here for. Right, right. Would, the question, though, is if windfall is forced, what is your turn two play, Kevin? Starting turn two with a ruby, a chrome mox on black, and a city of brass in play, your hand is tinker and burning wish. Well, there are a lot of factors that come into play before I can. I would really know what I would choose because my opponent would have a turn, so what they play matters significantly, and I'm going to draw an additional card. But let's say they forced me and they played nothing of consequence, meaning they have, say, Flusterstorm mana open on turn two. Then I think I'm pretty incentivized to Burning Wish for Thoughtseize, as you said. That has the bonus upside. You can play the Burning Wish and the Thoughtseize on two. It also has the upside of... If they don't have Flusterstorm, you get to plan for whatever they do have. Let's say they had Jace that they were waiting to get to four mana for. You get to take that instead. So you're progressing your plan while also disrupting them. 
So the bottom line is you would... I would wish for Thoughtseize on two and plan for a turn three tinker. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably what I would do, too. I can't shake the feeling that we have come up with a similar result in most of these cases. When you're playing this deck in a tournament setting, do you find that you are coming up with all these varied scenarios, but you're really boiling down to a couple of key endpoints in each case? <laughs> um, yes and no. Um, I think you def- there are definitely some some rules for learning the ropes of this deck, but you know there are so many singletons that the sequencing thing, if you put them in, in terms, if you sort of organize them in terms of heuristics like you just did, it can seem that way, but uh, there are differences that matter that do arise in marginal scenarios. But part of it, part of the uniformity comes down to sort of this the key suite of cards that Burning Wish finds. So any hand with Burning Wish is going to have that kind of uniformity to it. You're either going to get you know Thoughtseize or you're going to get Yawgmoth's Will. You know, you know, it's, uh, or if you don't have a graveyard big enough, you're going to find diminishing. Or if it's early enough, you might be setting up an empty the Warrens. You know, mm-hmm. so there is there is a good deal of consistency despite the ver- ver- variety of cards and the variability of cards in the deck. None of our opening hands here today actually included Oath of Druids, and that's partially because Oath of Druids is frequently such a linear choice in terms of deploying an opening hand that it's not quite as interesting to analyze. But just for the sake of reference, how powerfully are you seeking out Oath of Druids when you evaluate a hand like this that boils down to a draw seven, really? Is that still the thing you're going for? Or are you primarily focused on finding that Yawgmoth's will and winning the game here? Um, I'm open to both. You know, and, and usually the Oath of Druids is, is a means to find Yog will. Naturally. So, you know, one of the reasons I don't, I didn't call this deck an Oath deck is because it doesn't use Oath. I think I aggregated all of my games in my Burning Tendrils Bible, and I think like around exactly 40% of my games that I won, that I cast, cast Oath of Druids. So Oath is just a very important and powerful tactic, but it's not part of the strategy. It's the strategy is, is Burning Wishing for Tendrils, usually set up by, you know, like Hercules or Yawgmoth's Will, two best, the two best, uh, you know, storm enablers. Now that I've asked that question, I really kind of wish we had one of our examples here that pitted Oath against another spell, like a draw seven. Yeah. What if we? Mo- well, there are lots of there are lots of hands where it's like, do you play Oath or do you play Demonic Tutor on turn one? Right. You know, and those sorts of hands really, put, you know, and you could you could do that, but but in general, if you have an Oath, you know, there are basic rules to playing the deck. <laughs> you know, you probably lead with Oath before a draw seven. Uh, the exception might be a windfall. You know, because its value declines so precipitously after turn one, its value is so great on turn. Right. It's probably more powerful than an oath. We could talk about in the abstract and just resolve some of these issues. You know. Well, we can easily modify our fifth scenario here to include that choice. What if Crystalbrand is Oath of Druids in this last hand? So it's Ruby, Chrome Mox, City of Brass, Oath of Druids, Windfall, Tinker, and Burning Wish. I would play Windfall on turn one. Does your answer change if Windfall is Wheel of Fortune? I don't think it should. Yes, but... yes, it does because because Windfall's value drops so so much after turn one. Oh yes, of course. Your turn two or three Wheel of Fortune is still just as good. Yeah. So you're saying you would prefer to lead with Windfall because it's Windfall and because it's so dramatically worse on turns two and beyond. But if you had wheel in your opening hand, you'd lead with oath because your follow-up wheel is so much better. 
I think so. Interesting. And how much does it factor into your oath valuation when you have Gristlebrand in your opening hand as well? If this hand had oath in place of, say, the Tinker, such that Gristlebrand and oath were both there, does that change your evaluation of oath? You're saying if I have Gristlebrand and oath in my opening hand? Yes. Does that sh- make you shy away from casting the oath? No, because the oath just becomes more important to bait. So you, you actually make you more likely to want to play the oath early. You're relying on your opponent being forced to respect the oath. Yeah, yeah. I think that's an important lesson when playing this deck and evaluating these scenarios is we've tried to account for what our opponent would force of will, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but you have to look at the way these hands play out from the perspective of a control-playing opponent, and that means they have to respect the possibility of all your options. Like you said, if yeah. you lead with Dark Ritual, just a land in a Dark Ritual, they have to respect so many things. They have to respect Necropotence or yep. a turn one Mind Desire, perhaps, a turn one Burning Wish awesome. for, for Empty yep. the Warrens, all of the above. And yep. so you can, the, the, the really skilled player of this deck will guide their opponent into making the wrong assumptions. Yep, I think that's exactly right. That's why this is such a great and fun deck to play. Every one of these scenarios, I think, has turned out great. There's so much discussion to be had about even the tiniest choices. That's vintage. We got some great feedback from our last uh, podcast, which was our M14 Vintage Set Review. And on the Mandarin, Feely, Ballet, I don't know how you pronounce his name, asked, Thanks for providing the nice review. Just one question. Steve, you seem pretty enthusiastic about young Pyromancer revitalizing the Grow archetype in Vintage, and Pyro being pretty strong against workshops, uh, compared to Dryad. While Pyromancer is in the stronger color, it's harder to remove entirely, and can help against Tanguewire, doesn't it still not solve the main problem the Grow archetype has against workshops being dependent on cantrips and chaining instants and sorceries? I love it. I think it has lots of potential with Gush, uh, but sometimes it's a pretty slow win condition, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think his main point is the workshop deck is still pretty good against a deck built on cantrips and gush and free spells. But I think Pyromancer is such a gigantic upgrade over Dryad that it's, it is genuine cause for celebration. Um, that said, I think what we've seen is the workshop decks have begun to adjust to young Pyromancer. And so the grow decks are going to have to counter adjust. Wouldn't you say that's the case, Kevin? Yeah, I agree on all points. And I would add that your construction of your initial list of the Pyromancer grow deck is something of a nod to his question and the implicit that workshops is still a challenge because your deck had main deck to ancient grudge. You have constructed a deck with basically a tacit omission or admission to the fact that you need to have more gasoline against workshops in the main in order to expect to succeed. Exactly. The original exactly. grow lists that were so susceptible to the workshop disruption package in the past didn't have as many anti-artifact cards in their main decks, especially as you do in that in that deck now. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I think also, but I think the experience has shown that Pyromancer is pretty good against shops, and that's why shops had to adjust so heavily to combat it. And they've made tremendous metagame shifts in the last month to do just that. I think that the Pyromancer has been a pretty disruptive factor to the vintage metagame as a whole. It's pretty, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Storm Maniga, Manny Magus asked us, Fiend Hunter is not strictly worse than Vanisher Priest, as you guys seem to be implying. Fiend Hunter survives Pyroclasm and a Bob attack. This guy does not. Just wanted to clear that up. Kevin, what do you have to say to that? Uh, yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think that when players, when we were talking about the strictly uh, superior notion, I think that when players are looking at the two, they're going to choose the Banisher Priest, but yeah. that's a fair point. If Pyroclasm is common in your metagame, if people are metagaming against X1 and X2 creatures, then you might make the other choice. I actually don't think it's a fair point, because <laughs> I don't think either one of us implied that it was strictly superior. Well, I remember saying something along the lines of, you would play the Banisher Priest because it has the two power, and I do consider that to be better. Strictly superior is a tricky concept. I'd rather not yeah. dig into it fully, but I simply think that if you were running in a metagame with tons of pyroclasm, then sure, sure, you'd choose the Fiend Hunter. Gotcha. On Twitter, Chris Douglas asked, what vintage deck would you play right now if you didn't have the alpha artifact mana or library? And I think it's pretty clear that you would play humans right now. There was Not Dredge. Not Dredge. I would play yeah. humans right now. I think Dredge is viable. I mean, it's it's a good alternative, of course, but I really like the humans deck right now, and I think it gives you a lot of flexibility to metagame. This, this question implies a number of things in my experience. It implies uh, a, maybe a newer player to the to the environment getting in, and I think a humans deck is much more approachable, especially if you've played other formats, especially if you've played yeah. other eternal formats. And also, I just consider it to be more fun. If you're really a fan of Dredge, then then go for it. But the simple fact is is that this Humans deck has lots of ways you can build it, so it's an interesting way to get into the format when, and have your leave your mark on a deck. And also, it catches people by surprise. People are people know how to play against Dredge. You can still win, but the Humans deck is catching people unawares, and it's really cool. So there's a list in the Eternal Central coverage of Gen Con for the Saturday event that has the Humans deck that made top eight there. I think that's a good starting point. I don't think that's the only point, but that's my answer. Steve, what do you think? Um, you know, I haven't really thought about it. I think my um, you know, initial answer would have been Dredge, but you make a pretty compelling case for humans. I think if you don't want to work on deck construction quite as much, and if you want something that's proven and consistent, then Dredge is a great choice. If you would mm -hmm. rather just participate in the event rather than metagaming, then you can work faster at making Dredge. But also... Dredge requires the bazaars. So that's another thing that I think is implicit in this question. If you don't have the alpha artifact mana and you don't have library, then there is an increased chance that you don't have access to the bazaars either. But I'm making more assumptions. Yeah, it's great. All right, well, you know, we're always here to answer your questions about vintage. And we're looking forward to our next set review. Our next podcast will be our hero set review. Question of the week, or the not of the week, question of the month at this point. <laughs> is uh, what Heroes card would you like us to review? Um, again, you can tweet us or email us or reply to wherever this link is posted and um, let us know what you'd like us to review. Thanks for listening to episode 28 of So Many Insane Plays. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. It's
Netscape Protection Game! <laughs> <laughs>